0: Hey there, lovely listeners. Welcome back to season five of Therapy Works. I'm Julia Samuel, author, psychotherapist, and newfound podcaster, joined by my amazing daughters. Hi, I'm Emily. And I'm Sophie. Join us every week as we dive into our therapy room, sharing stories from voices both known and unknown. Together, we'll navigate life's challenges.
1: Get ready for deep conversations about real struggles. We're firm believers that sharing stories isn't just cathartic, it's profoundly healing.
2: Absolutely. As fellow psychotherapists, we're here to expand your understanding of
0: therapy and its transformative power. After each chat, Emily, Sophie and I will reflect on lessons learned, offering insights for your own life.
2: Our
1: mission? Prove that even tough conversations can be a source of growth,
2: resilience and hope. Whether you're a long-time listener Or a first timer, we are thrilled to have you with us. Each episode aims to leave you with something
0: valuable. So, no more waiting. Let's dive into this week's episode, Unpacking Life's Challenges Together. Welcome to Season 5 of Therapy Works. Julia Bradbury, I am so delighted to have you on the Therapy Works podcast.
3: Oh, Julia, thank you. I am so delighted to be on it. I'm very excited, a little bit nervous and actually very thankful because I'm at a stage in my life where I'm really experimenting with my emotions and exploring them a little bit more. So it's come at the right time. Oh, good.
0: Well, that's exactly what we want to be doing. So, I mean, I think most people will have heard of you, but you're a well-known broadcaster, author, nature advocate, charity campaigner, and maybe... Even more significantly now, a mum of three. Yeah, certainly
3: more significant for me. That I, I always say that my children are, are my best production. Yes,
0: that's a lovely way of saying it. So we start the podcast with a question, which is, tell me a challenge that you have faced or are facing.
3: I was asked recently by, by a doctor that I'm working with in America to look through my medical history. And when you start looking through your medical history, you might think, oh, I'm healthy. And then you start looking at things and you go, oh, that happened when I was 12. And that happened when I was in my 20s. And then I got endometriosis in my 30s. And then you suddenly realize there are all these uh, health challenges along the way. And you're not that healthy picture that you think you are. So I think the obvious challenge that we should probably start with is two and a half years ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And it really did come out of the blue for me. And I don't know why it was such a surprise, because then when I started to deep dive into my health and my lifestyle and my habits, it really wasn't for me such a surprise because I was doing quite a lot of things right, but I was doing quite a lot of things wrong. And that's not to say that I blame myself for my cancer, or I blame anybody, actually, who is on the receiving end of a cancer diagnosis. But I think it is interesting when you do start to do a bit of an audit on yourself, there are things that you go, huh, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. And I know that you've read my book, Walk Yourself Happy. And in the book, I talked to various experts, including people like Mm -hmm. Professor Russell Foster, who's a circadian rhythm expert, a sleep expert. And that was just one of the things that, I knew I wasn't very good when it came to sleep. I knew that I hadn't really focused on my sleep very well throughout my life, that I pushed at my physical boundaries of sleep. Even though it's something I tell my children all the time, sleep is a superpower and it's important that you get your sleep. I didn't really, until I was sort of deep dive researching it, realize how important for us, what a fundamental pillar it is for all of us, because If you don't sleep properly, your body starts to function in a different way, your mind starts to function in a a different way, you take more risks, you're more negatively inclined, you're more on edge, you're jumpy, your blood sugar response isn't as good, you know, it affects your blood, your hormones, everything is affected by a bad night's sleep. And I've had many bad nights sleep, some of them great fun and all, all down to me. And some of them because work took precedent or I was flying across time zones or for whatever reason. So, yeah, I would say that the breast cancer diagnosis is my biggest physical and emotional challenge to date.
0: And do I take from your response that when you're faced with a challenge, your first response is to investigate, like to kind of go in and see where, where does this come from? What can I influence? What do I have to accept? How do I make the best of this? Being given the diagnosis, can you bear to go back? Because there's that moment you have the news where it is the moment before. It's a seismic moment, isn't it? The moment before when you're kind of innocent to some, to a greater extent. The illnesses you had before weren't life-threatening. And then after that, you're no longer innocent. And in some ways, you grieve for the innocence of the life that you naturally thought you're going to have and you probably will have, but with less certainty.
3: Yeah, I was watching The Crown last night and it's, I'm up to the episode where Diana has her crash and obviously The Crown is fiction. But there's a line in there where Prince Charles knows that Diana has passed away because of the car crash. And the Queen asks him, has he told the boys yet? And he said, no, the boys are still asleep. And I'm going to let them sleep for as long as possible, because while they still sleep, they still have a mother.
0: Oh, God, that makes me And cry. I suppose that's
3: the moment that you're talking about. The moment before you get the diagnosis, actually, you, you don't have cancer. You're carrying on with your daily life. And the moment I found out, actually, it was, it was not clean cut. And I don't think cancer diagnoses are. Uh, I, I had discovered a lump about a year before and I had, I had, I'd had it investigated. I'd had a mammogram and I had followed it up. And nothing untoward showed on the mammogram. And then I had a follow up consultation with the doctor who would eventually become my surgeon for my mastectomy. It, he also didn't find anything untoward and he suspected that they were benign microcysts. That's how they were described. And then a year later, he. But he did say to me, "It would be it would be worth you keeping an eye and monitoring this lump. Let's see where you're at in a year, and potentially it would be it would be worth you having another mammogram in another year to see if it's changed." And it was just something at the bottom of my to do list that I had. I will let, get guess. Don't forget in a year's time, and I'm not very organised when it comes to stuff like that. But it was there on the bottom of the list. So I did. A year later. The lump was still there, but this time it was painful. It was painful to touch. And mm-hmm. as far as I could tell, it hadn't, I didn't know that it had got any bigger, but now there was this added dimension of pain. So I went for my, my, my follow up mammogram. This was to see what had happened and had it changed. And again, when I was in with the technical team, they said, no, it's, it, there's nothing. We can't see anything. It looks fine. You do have dense breasts which is relevant, but everything looks fine. So, you know, don't worry. But I didn't have the consultation at that stage because my, my, my surgeon was away. He couldn't do the consultation. So I then went off on holiday and came back. And that was when I was going to have the consultation. About four or five weeks later, that's when he could see me. So there was a But gap. you kind
0: of thought everything's fine. You you thought this good. I've just this is a final kind of tick. I'm going to get by seeing yeah, him.
3: Yeah, yeah. And I was going in to see him to have it confirmed that what the other team had said was absolutely true and that there was nothing to worry about here. And we were talking about holidays and stuff and traveling and mountains and walking. And he said, "I'm just going to give you one more ultrasound before you go. I'm just going to give you another physical examination before you leave." I said, "Okay," and I hopped onto his table and. That was the moment. Within the next minute, that's when I knew this is a, this man who's been performing mastectomies and is a breast cancer expert. He's been doing this for 20 odd years. But I suppose even professionals can't help. There was a slight falter in the way he moved. And there was face, a slight, and his face. And there was a little, not, it wasn't a sharp intake of breath at all. Actually, he stopped breathing for a second. And that was the moment I wow. knew because he said, I can see something there that I don't like. And so he, had, he said he could see a tiny pinprick of dark. And that was his clue that something was wrong. So I went back to imaging and I had another ultrasound. And then there was like, ah, yes, okay. So this was just six weeks after the same team had said, can't see anything. And it was very small and difficult to detect. And that's when I discovered a couple of things. First of all, dense breasts. I've got dense breasts. A lot of women have dense breasts. It's very hard to see cancer on a dense breast mammogram because the mammogram imaging is white and cancer is white. So, if you have dense breasts, there is more white tissue what to see. What does seen it mean away. that you've got a de- big boob tissue? Or no, it's lo- It's tissue. It's how very, the tissue. Yes, yeah, very. It's how the tissue is constructed, and it, it's tightly wound together. And you can see lots of on the mammogram. You can see lots of bits of white because that's the density of your breasts. That's the density of my breasts. Your de- your breast might not be, but it makes it very difficult to see cancer because the cancer is white as well. So as one doctor described it to me, it's a bit like looking for a snowflake in a snowstorm. So not... Ah, It's really hard. Very hard. And actually not... So that means mammograms for women with dense breasts, not that efficient.
0: But where you go straight away is your curiosity, isn't it? Yeah. I can see that you didn't sit with the moment he said, I see something I don't like. You went to dense breasts. So that your kind of default mode of coping is trying is to make sense of it. Why is it? And I wonder if even there's a sort of shudder of a memory of when you when you read his face. Do you feel that in your body, or have you kind of processed that now? I think
3: I've processed that. the The bit for me that makes me shudder is immediately after. The, the the further imaging which confirmed his suspicions, which was that there was something untoward there. I had to have a biopsy straight away, and biopsies Gosh. are horrible procedures. I don't know if I, some of your listeners might have been through. Yeah, yeah. It, it's basically a hole punch to drill down, get the tissue. So you have a local anesthetic, and I don't like having anesthetics at the best of times. So it's more chemicals and stuff in your body. So you have a local anesthetic. It really sort of damages your boob. You know, it, it bruises you. And then they drill down into the tissue right. and they pull out the rest. And it's, yeah, sorry for everybody listening, but it's not pleasant. Mm, and it's probably, brutal. It's brutal. And it's probably, if you're going through something like that, it's I would say best to be forewarned about it because it's not a nice yeah. procedure. So you have to prepare yourself. So I was doing my breathing exercises. And it was at that point that I had a, a mask on because it was mid-COVID. And that's what we were doing at that time. And my sister was waiting for me downstairs. Gina was waiting for me. And she sent me a message, which I didn't know until afterwards, saying, are you okay? It's taking a long time. Then a tear started rolling down my cheeks. And I just, in my head, I went, I want to see my children grow up. Oh, and I oh, still, that, makes that, cry. that may, and that still makes yeah. me cry every single yeah. time because that was the moment where I sort of faced the, real danger of cancer, as in this is going to be life-changing in a profound way. And mm. that was this—that that is my worst possible scenario, is not to see my children grow up.
0: And it kind of reveals in a kind of obliterating of other stuff way what really matters most, that you live long enough to parent your children, to mother your children until they're, well, for as long as possible.
3: That is my mission in life now. It's to stay alive for as long as possible, so that I can watch my children flourish and grow, and not just them. Obviously, I, I have a thirst for life as well. It's it, there's a selfish motivation there as well to stay alive, and and I think you know we we've, we've all evolved. We all have that. We you know we want to live, but it has just created the most profound sense of gratitude for life on a daily basis, and for the small things. I say in my book, the small things are the big things. And for me right now, not forever, because I want them to grow and leave and flourish. It's not that I want my children to stay small forever and be under my wing forever but the, at this this part of my life is so beautiful it's so lovely and it's such a privilege to be a mum I was I came to motherhood late in life and my girls were born through IVF so another torturous procedure where you go through yeah. a, a range of emotions so my children were hard fought for and I love them with every essence of my being and and I, I just want to and I want to be a good mum for them as well I want to be a positive role model for them and I want to be a healthy role model for them I want them I want to be a mum that they can look up to I don't want to be a sick mum for them.
0: Because it sounds also that, you know, a diagnosis is a change. So you're in that moment, everything changed. And some people resist change and they kind of block it, like I'm going to be fine, I'm going to march forward, you know, I'm going to be all right. And it sounds to me like you've let the change you, that you've like really sat back. And, And I can hear it in the book too, how can I... Tip the balance in my favour. If forty percent of all cancer diagnosis is preventable, and that's still sixty percent that is random, as it were. Mm. But how can I amp my odds? And it sounds like you've taken that very seriously.
3: Yeah, and I think that's very much part of my character. Even with work projects, I take. I, I love my job. I think it's such an edifying. Job and I feel very lucky to be doing it. You know, I've traveled the world. I've met some incredible people. It's been an education almost every day, and and I really do. Yeah, I take it. I and I say and therefore I take it very seriously. So I work hard at my job in terms of doing my research, making sure I'm prepared, learning as much as I can. And when I'm there and I'm on location, I'm in the studio. I am as prepared as anybody could be. Yes, there will be curveballs and there'll be stuff that I can't deal with, but I feel that I've done my homework to get to that position in in order to do that.
0: And jump in, don't you? You kind of go to the edge and you just take a bloody great dive. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you take all the info and then you just go for it. Just to go back. I mean, I will want to ask you about change, but does that come from your upbringing? Tell me a bit about your early life, your parents' influences, how you came to be who you are now. Well, that's always fascinating, isn't it? How did we all become who we are
3: now? And as we know, it's this very complex mix of nurture and nature. And then there's good and there's bad. So on the surface of things, what I'd say to you is, Julia, I had the most perfect upbringing. I had two loving parents who were comfortable financially. Both of them worked. So I had two good role models and they loved me and made sure that I knew that love was there. And I had an older sister who I adored and we grew up, I grew up Partially in a little village in Rutland, which was idyllic next to a church. And I remember the church bells Gosh. ringing, and I would climb apple trees and scrump apples. It's like a Victorian sun- book. Yeah. yeah, it was honestly. So that's the surface of it. And I'm I'd, so um, grateful to my parents. Yes, uh, uh, for everything that they did. But of course, when you start to narrow down into the complexities, my mum is a beautiful lady and a very complicated lady. She had a very tough upbringing. My grandparents were Greek immigrants. They moved to Wales about 100 years ago. And my grandmother was born in Wales and my mother was born in Wales, but to a very Greek family living in one little house. It was Cardiff, so it wasn't that rural, and there, it was a remember it was okay. a port. it was busy, so but they were certainly I think the only Greeks on the street, and they would get people would spit on them, and my mum would talk oh, about God. all of those kinds of experiences. They were dark skinned Greekies, all the rest of it and I had a bit of that when I was oh, growing God. up when I was at school, I was bullied, I was called the the, the Greek and Seriously? and there were a group of girls who really didn't like me and I was in and then I was out and then I was in and I was out, so I dealt with that through through my secondary school period. But mum, because of her b- upbringing, she really was very driven, didn't want to go back to that place. So worked incredibly hard n- n- not to be short of money again. And she's very industrious, very entrepreneurial. So very inspiring from that point of view. Very sadly, her first um, marriage ended in disaster when her first husband committed suicide. So that was very dramatic as well. Big trauma. And my, Brig trauma. And my sister was born, Gina, who is my my technically my half-sister, but I never call her my half-sister because she's just been my sister from the time that that I was born. So my sister Gina had that trauma as well. And there's no question that my mum and my sister have that trauma, live with that trauma.
0: My yeah, sister's probably de- it's dealt with Mark.
3: Yes, and I don't think my mum, as a result, doesn't trust very many people. And she would never talk to a psychologist really like this because she's not trusting of them or the system or something. So she's carried a lot. And of course, that would have permeated through my childhood. There would have been instances where I was very aware of all of this history. And sometimes I was a bit of a therapist for my mum.
0: So interesting, isn't it? Because if she'd lived under threat, which she did, threat of attack, threat of being different, alienated, and then her first husband died by suicide. Of course, the thing you absolutely lose is trust. Because when you're under threat, you don't trust anything. You don't trust your own safety, let alone that anybody else is trustworthy. So you live in that very heightened state And so part of what made you who you were was to try and soothe her, I guess. Yes. To try and understand her, to be her therapist. Because I guess you were always observing her, trying to track her, work her out, why you're so curious, but also a really good communicator. Like you learned how to emotionally cadence your voice and tone and how you respond.
3: And I found my parents' relationship fascinating because my dad is very opposite to my mum in many ways. He's English born and bred. His parents were very detached and sent him to boarding school when he was a young boy. He's very loving and very caring as a father, but has this detachment. And he has his own trust issues for all of those reasons. Um, And he was a very corporate man. They found each other, didn't they? They did find each other, but I don't know that they've always helped each other. I think sometimes when you're too similar in many ways, it becomes quite hard to help each other, to support each other, yeah. because there, the there's thin, a bit of conflict.
0: It's a thin bridge. Mm.
3: Yeah. So there was definitely tension between them, the tension that I observed when I was growing up. And I don't mean tension in a horrible way. I don't mean it was a violent, abusive family home. That they're, it, I suppose we're it just human felt. beings.
0: You could feel it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And, and we can. Humans do. We pick up everything, don't we? Even if you're mother is stressed or is open to an environmental toxin when she's pregnant with you, that will have an impact on you. We're now at this incredible stage with in research where the fetus's brain is impacted by not just the food cortisol. that a mother might eat, but cortisol, yes, cortisol, by the stress hormone. So my mum always says she was very happy when she was pregnant because it was in Ireland and they both say that these were the happiest times of their life. But there will have been stresses and strains. They'd just moved, they'd moved countries. My father became a stepfather very quickly to Gina. Life, life that show me somebody who has had that Victorian idyllic upbringing where there are no complications no. and no stresses to no. deal with.
0: That cut, sort of cookie cut out perfect life doesn't exist for anyone. But so for you in your being, possibly is some transgenerational trauma that so you'd have kind of looked at yourself like everything. Looks fine and it should feel fine, but somehow there's a part of me that is on alert, is somehow looking.
3: Yes, and that's what I've been exploring more recently. I just recently come back from a trip to South Africa and I went to uh, a beautiful place. It was a retreat, not a fancy, fancy retreat. It was was a retreat that had beautiful gardens and it had, I'd heard, amazing therapists of various kinds. Uh, One was a trauma release therapist. Who I wanted to see, a lady called Beth. And that was mm. interesting. That was really interesting. Mm. Another, and that people will be people might listen to this and go, Oh, there was a, another young woman there who gave the most incredible massages, but was also very intuitive. And she said to me, she said to me before the massage, she was young and smiley and very lovely. She said, Oh, she said, I do tarot cards. Do you want me to read your tarot cards? Now that's not my thing at all. <laughs> I was like, but you know what? It's like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm open. Why not go for, for it? Everything. I'm here. At this, yeah. I'm here. I like you. Let's see where this goes, shall we? So she, yeah. we, we did the tarot card thing and, and she flipped the card. Or I flipped the card over and it was a snake. And she said, that's interesting. She said, because the snake, what do you think of snakes? I said, well, I don't like snakes personally. I really yeah. don't like snakes on a personal no, level. Yeah. But she said, yeah, well, the snake is the sign of medicine. And if you think about it, I've written about it in the of book. Of course. The <laughs> international sign of medicine. It, and it at- bloody is, yeah. It is. And the Greeks used to use snakes as a sort of therapy. The other meaning behind the snake as a symbol is it's a sign of shedding skin and moving on to new things. Change. Yes. So anyway, that I I smiled. That's so meaningful. I thought it was meaningful. I smiled. I didn't think, oh, my gosh, this is going to change my life. I just, I liked it. I thought, okay, yes, I'm enjoying it. It resonated. Yeah. yeah. And then she gave me the most incredible reflexology and massage where I almost cried. It was so powerful and she could feel where I needed the work and the tension. So mm. I left there on an absolute high. And also as part of this retreat, I saw a shaman. And he was a shaman called Bob with Celtic <laughs> root, but in Strong South me. Africa. And it he I know quite extraordinary and he'd spend a lot of time with tribes people all across Africa and he's done his spiritual journeys and learnt his trade that way and he had these a bag of wooden plaques if so I could try them little discs like domino discs and they're the wooden from a shea woman what he did was he put his hand into the bag and then he threw them down and he said this is your medicine wheel this is how it works and it's guided by the spirits so I went fine yeah, let's do it I was open so he threw them down and they were four north, south, east, west. And the one in the south, he went, oh, well, that's interesting. Sign of the snake. <laughs> and I went, yes, whoa, that is interesting, isn't it? And then we began, I didn't tell him. Then we began to discuss the snake and he, his interpretation. And he said the snake can mean fear and overcoming fear and moving again onto new things and trying new things. And... He said a very profound thing to me that has stuck with me, and that is that trying and doing are two very different things and people get stuck on the trying. So he said, try and stand up. And he said it again. And I looked at him, he went, try and stand up. I said, are you telling me to stand up? He said, try and stand up. So of course I stood up. He said, that's what I mean, the difference between the trying and the doing people get caught up on the trying to change their habits, the trying to do something better, the trying to do something new. And it's the doing that is the thing that pushes you forward. And I just thought that was so interesting.
0: If we look at that lens, Of that moment where you're trying and you do, it's part of that kind of step by step. Since the diagnosis, the challenge of the diagnosis, your perception of what matters has changed. And I guess, I mean, how do you manage the fear? Hmm. So you can go for the positive, I'm going to eat better, I'm going to sleep better, I'm going to exercise and, you know, walking is your therapist as well. So we will talk about that. I imagine you get suddenly hits of fear or images, or how do you not?
3: So this is how I have learned to manage the fear. I decided to open my mind and my heart and my body up to emotional experiences and to exploring myself and to learning more about myself emotionally than I ever have done before. Because my feeling is if I can surrender to good emotions and bad emotions, I'm being true to myself. And if I'm being true to myself, I will be able to handle the wobbles. Whereas if I put on this brave face, which I'm very capable of doing of toxic positivity, and I I believe very much in positivity. My mum, interestingly, gave me, I wanted them, they're behind me. There were 12 cassette tapes of positive thinking when I was about 11 or 12. And I listened to them and I loved them. And I still go by positive mantras and affirmations.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, they do help.
3: I th- yes. I think they help you through everyday life. And I think that it changes your outlook. But I think you you can almost try and fool yourself. That's it. And if you listen to the tapes and you say the affirmations, then life's going to be great. And of course, That isn't what makes life great. That isn't how you can get through life. The only way you can get through life is by facing the challenges and dealing with them and handling them on every level. And I just feel that what the breast cancer diagnosis has has done for me is opened me up. It's made me vulnerable, but in a good way because I'm not frightened to show that vulnerability anymore. I can express that vulnerability because I have a right to be vulnerable and to be scared because I face something quite terrifying. Therefore, it's given me, I think, an excuse to dive more into who I am and what I am and why I am. And I feel almost as if it's given me another purpose in my life now, which is to learn as much as I can and share what I learn. And that's why I was so happy and, and grateful that you asked to do this podcast with me because it's an opportunity to talk to a world-renowned expert and open up and learn something more about me.
0: Oh, I mean, that feels very touching. But what you're saying feels deeply profound and meaningful. And it's like changing the template of what you saw modeled by your mum and kind of recognizing is you when you face And allow yourself to go both ends of the spectrum. If you have pain and fear, one end, and joy and love, this end. When you close one, you close the other. And so you're expanding your whole being and heart and engagement, which is both vulnerable and exposing, but also, I imagine, profoundly more meaningful. I was going to say exhilarating almost. It's like life has more depth to it now because you really are going for it. Yes, and I think you've really expressed
3: it very clearly for me. Life has more colour, it has more texture, it has more meaning to it. I'm trying to be a kinder person, a more graceful person, a more understanding person as I expand my growing and my learning. And it's one of my new affirmations is I'm expanding my learning, I'm expanding my learning, I'm expanding my grace every day. That's part of, that's one of sort of a section of my mantras every day is to really put myself out there for that. And that's my new coping mechanism, whereas I think before my coping mechanism was just to get on. I do have people comment about this energy. I have got lots of energy, I feel. You do. I can feel it. I just want it to be harnessed in the right way I've got that experience but now I have sort of a new layer of experience and how can I expand myself and my world in a different way now in a more in a not a more positive way because that means that everything else was negative but
0: just different just differently in a grown way it sounds like it it, how in a sort of more rooted in your heart way. Before the push was like going fast and going furious, you know, to achieve. And now it feels like you're going slower because you really want to cherish every moment. So the decisions that you make and what you do with your time, you really want it to match who you are now in a way. Mm. And so that you know, you can't just waste time and just do something that isn't meaningful or doesn't kind of meet some of that. Part of what you're doing in the future is be wanting to do more good, isn't it? To influence so that there's, so that it's meaningful what you do. Mm. So how might you be doing that?
3: Well, I'm looking at my, I'm looking at myself. Myself, Julia Bradbury, the TV presenter, the author, the, the public face. And I'm going, right, what what do I want to be now? What do I want to represent?
0: What do I want to use my platform for?
3: Yes. And I've got a very good friend. I've got great friends in South Africa. That's why I was there. Friends who I've known since I was in my 20s, who I cherish. And particularly one of one of my friends, Hetty, and I had this conversation and she said, Jules. She said, I've seen you over the years. I've seen what you do. And she's in in television as well. She's a very talented writer and producer. And she said, you've got this, you've got this extraordinary opportunity now where you've gone from what you've done over here, which is really admirable. And now you've written this book, which has become a bestseller and has put you into this sort of health and wellness space. And now you're sitting here, What are you going to do? She said, I want to know. What are you going to do? And I said, You know what, Hetty? I said, I just, that's what I'm thinking about. That's what I'm exploring. Because I know that I want it to be profound and I want it to be useful and I want it to be big and I want it to be gentle and good. But I just, I need a little bit of guidance now. I just don't quite know how to make this next step. And where it should be exactly so i'm doing something that i haven't done before julia i'm taking a bit of time good for you yeah i really want to take time now to work out what is the next step going to be because it's got to be the right step and it's got to be it's it's got to be right for everybody including me so this time well, primarily
0: you I yeah I don't know if you've heard of this concept. It's called the fertile void. No, it's tell me about end. the fertile It's from Gestalt, Fritz Perl's model of therapy. Okay. And so what that talks about is that is the, you, you have a kind of an awareness. You want something, you go for it, you decide what you want, you get what you want, you make contact, you take in the result of what you've done. And then before you do something else, there's this gap where you have a fertile void, where you allow the liminal space of fertility of thinking about something, not doing it, thinking about something else, not doing it, exploring, trying out, wondering. And it's a place of great fertility, but it isn't a place of action until you come to a point when you go, ah, okay. Now I know what my next step is. Mm. Mm.
3: That makes perfect sense, and thank you for sharing that because that's a there, there's a validity to what I'm doing, and I suppose that's part of me. That's important for me to know. You know, I'm not. I I don't feel like I'm time wasting. I don't feel like I'm being lazy. I just feel that I really need to experiment, push on some
0: doors, and learn as much as possible as to what's next. But also having had your diagnosis, had a very serious operation, recovery from the operation, written a book, very successful book, promoting the book, which it takes almost as much work as the book, certainly takes a huge amount of energy. You actually, if you think of yourself like a season, you know, you've had your spring and summer and autumn, and now you need your winter. You need your winter to let the leaves settle, the ground go underground and just have a winter, have Julia's winter so that you can properly restore before you start growing again. And you've said, I
3: can do that, so that's great. (laughs) (laughs) Is permission
0: giving to yourself hard to do? I mean, I imagine there's your mum's drum in you, like, you know, she's an entrepreneur, get going, keep, keep pushing. Is part of your learning going to be really giving yourself permission to be rather than do is that part of the
3: it is part of it but it's a difficult part of it because you know I've got three young children the pressures of everyday life you know you need to bring home the bacon yeah the bills keep coming in so there's this balance of and I, i understand I'm in an incredibly privileged position in as much as I have a bit of leeway. You know, I have got mm. time to have a little bit of space and I'm very grateful for that. And I know that people don't have that often and that mm. it can. that's another enor- enormous pressure. But it is definitely a consideration. But it is, I, I have learned over the past couple of years, and I would say this to other ladies who are in my position. Remember, once you've had a cancer diagnosis, you have from a work point of view, you have allowances. You have to be listened to at work, and you have to be given the time that you need, and uh, the goalposts changed at work. And you have you you have the ability to make more demands of work to say, "I need this time. I, ha- I need some medical time off, or whatever it might be." So look into that. Look into your rights at work because you do have more rights post a cancer diagnosis. Yes, it's important, and I think that's important. And I do things now. So for me. It has to be an exceptional circumstance where I don't do my morning routine. So my morning routine is to wake up, to smile, to get the nice. chemicals going. Hello, day. Yeah. Hello, Dave. So even if I don't feel like her, if it, smile. Yeah. And then I go straight to my bathroom and I open my bathroom window and I climb out onto my bathroom ledge, which is safe because it's got a little balcony thing underneath it. So okay. I'm it.
0: not going to have a heart attack at the idea. No, of it. Good. No. And I
3: have a little blanket that I put out first onto the onto the windowsill. And I have a, one of those big dry robe coats that I pop on. Uh, so uh, during the winter, this is. And I get my morning light. And I look out, whether you. it's a grey day or whether it's a beautiful sunny day, I get my morning light. And you will know that getting the morning light into Maybe your eyes- hits the receptor, back of the brain, to get you ready for the day ahead. So it changes your body chemistry, which is phenomenal, just that light can do that. So I do that. Yeah, it's, I write about in the book with wonder. I'm just, this. it is extraordinary. And then I do, and at the same time, I'm doing my breath work. And honestly, whether it's for 10 minutes, which is the minimum, or whether it's for half an hour, which is my optimum, after that little routine, I feel amazing it really sets me up. It, it is sort of an Amazing. elixir for me. So I make sure, and whatever's coming in, whatever work stuff is coming in, it's an early radio thing. It's come on to GMB. It's write something for the book. It's, mm. I make sure I either get up earlier so that I can do that, or I push whatever it is back and go, I can't do it till such and such a time. Yeah. That for me has been a, an absolute game changer and I've been lucky that the production companies that I've worked with so far have been very mindful of what I've been through. And when they and say, well, can you do a 7 a.m. start, I go, no, I'm really sorry, I can't. I'll be doing this then and I need to get myself. I'll be much more used to you if you have me there at 10 because I'll be ready to go. I will be mentally sharp. I will be physically energized. It's going to be better for all of us if we can do that, please.
0: So it's great to also to have a no To be able to say, rather than sort of think, oh God, I have to do it, to have a clear know about what is your priority Mm. that protects your physical and mental health, but also is a role model of people you're working with, right? It's not any better for them either. So in the back of my mind, and this may be too personal, I wonder how your three children are with your diagnosis. Do they worry? How much do they know? And this may not, you may not want to talk about it.
3: I'm happy to talk about it because I have spoken about how telling my children was the most difficult thing that I've done in my life. Mm. But I wanted to tell them because I felt it was important. Yes, as a parent, you want to protect your children. Of course you do. But you also, I think, have a responsibility to help them learn and grow. And that means sometimes exposing them to truths that are not always comfortable. I didn't hear the words during my diagnosis. And again, I'm very grateful for this this is going to be very aggressive and it's going to be very difficult to treat and there's a 40% chance you're going to die. I didn't hear that. A friend of mine has heard that. I didn't hear that. So I honestly didn't feel once I was through the onslaught of those initial diagnosis and appointments, I didn't feel I was going to die imminently. I, there, there might be feelings now in the back of my head about the reoccurrence, which is why I do everything that I do to try and reduce those risks. Mm. But I didn't feel that I had to say to my children, mummy's got cancer and there's a good chance I'm going to die. What I had to do, which is even more complicated, say mummy has this thing called cancer and she's not going to be very well for a period of time, but she's probably going to be okay. Now, for a child, that's not really great because you really want to tell children definitive things. We're going to do, this is how it's going to be. And of course, I couldn't in this instance. It was a. This was much more vague. So my partner and I decided to tell them in the garden because that's a place where we spend a lot of time together yes. and we're very and you happy. you
0: your belief in nature, it's your kind of spiritual home, isn't it, really?
3: Yeah, very much so.
0: We took them for a
3: walk around the garden. And at the time, my girls, my twin girls were seven and my son was 11 we just said, look, we've got something to tell you. And that is that mummy's not very well. And she's got something called cancer. And um, immediately, I think one of them said, is your hair going to fall out? Because that's what children think about cancer. And I said, no, I don't think my hair's going to fall out, darling, because I don't think I'm going to have that sort of treatment for my cancer. What I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have an operation. And it's going to be to my left breast, my boob, as we call them. And I'll be very sore for a while and I don't really know what else is is going to happen after that. So I'm just going to have, you're going to have to be with us and we'll we'll get through all of this together. And my little girl said, mummy, does that mean I won't be able to hug you anymore? And I said, no, of course not. That means that you need to hug me more. I will want more hugs, please. But I might be a little bit sore for a while. Mm. And so that's how we explained it to them. I think they are okay. And we regularly, we talk about my new boob because check I had an immediate in, reconstruction. In. Yeah. And you know, my girls, they like, they have a little feel every now and again. They feel the squidgy boob and they're not so squidgy boob because my, you know, my false boob is a silicon boob. So it it's feels nice. different to the, so we do that. It was it, last year, one of my little girls, who's the deep one, said to me, "Mummy, what happens if your cancer comes back? And I said, I don't know the answer to that, Zina, but it isn't good. When cancer comes back, it generally isn't a good sign because it means it's still somewhere in you. And it, when it comes back like that, it can be more aggressive. And she said, and do you think yours is going to come back? I said, I don't think it is, but I can't promise you. And she, So
0: you're so honest, which you need to be. And
3: she just looked at me with her big brown eyes and she sort of shook oh my. her head. And... Honestly, oh. of course it's affected them. Of course it's impacted them. But we do talk about it regularly and we do check in. And they, what I'm now trying to do is they see me trying very hard with my food. I'm very enthusiastic about their health and their food as well now. They know that. Okay. <laughs> sometimes they hate it. No sugar. So no sugar. Mm. They see me exercising and they see how hard it is sometimes to exercise. I exercise when I don't feel mm. like it. I make sure that they're outside every day. They see that I'm trying my very best. And I think that yeah. is, is a—I think it's the best I can do is for them yeah. to see that I'm really trying to keep myself healthy for me and for them. Should anything happen, it's not for want of trying. It's not for me dr- trying to do my very best. And I just think in the back of my mind, I think they'll always have that. Mummy tried her best. She really did what she could.
0: And also... The other important thing is that you're living every day. Yeah. Like it feels to me like you are really living your life. The life that you have now, you're living it with all of your being. Like you have in some way engaged and jumped in it deeper. And so that you love more, feel more alive, more grateful. It's intensified the quality of your life and that they will pick up from you. That will be contagious yeah in a good way
3: my my little girls held hands this morning they argue quite a lot so i don't want to seem like swiss family robinson but they held hands and it, it just made my heart jump one of my little girls oh. went i'm i'm creating oxytocin <laughs> <laughs>
0: Really know <laughs> so you can, it does it's true so you can really
3: go them yeah so you can really see because when I hug them I have a I have a, a stress monitor now on my on my wrist the HRV yeah for HRV yeah. and for stress and things and they are both of my girls are fascinated every time I go at night to hug them good night they click on my stress monitor and they go let me see what your stress is mummy and they hug me. Because I say to them, well, when you hug me, my stress levels go down, down because my oxytocin is going up. So they hug me and they watch it. They're going, it's going from 60. Oh, it's down to 30. Oh, it's down to 12. And they're really excited. thats amazing. But they see it. And that also for me, I think, gosh, this will help them as they're older. Yeah. This, they will really see that these things help, the hugging, the breath, so the meditation. Yeah. It's a really important lesson for them.
0: Isn't it the best way of using gadgets? Because gadgets can be so awful, but when it really creates the evidence that you need that hugging is the best medicine in the world, that's a wonderful thing.
3: Yeah, and who would have thought that a bit of tech could do that who would think that you know a wearable as they call them you know would help create that connection with your children and teach them in such a meaningful way about something so separate from your physical health really it's not separate we all know it's part of it but it's a different it's a different way of looking at health because it's your Amazing. emotional health
0: so we're coming to the end is there a final learning that you want to explore or think about
3: I suppose I'd like to ask you, as I'm fortunate enough to have your expert uh, knowledge here, how do you think I can best continue to grow? Because I've, I I don't know this, but do you, sort of, do you hit a ceiling? Do you hit the moment where you can't grow and expand anymore? Or how is it that you can continue to push those boundaries? How can I continue to learn
0: and improve myself? I think that's such a... Interesting question. What, what comes to mind is that there are two sides of it, which is the, probably the key quality is self-compassion, like being kind to yourself within it, so that you do want to grow. The growing mustn't become a police state that you sort of then become the kind of ordered and marched to do everything that's positive. You have amazing instincts. So I think you will go on growing when you follow your instincts, because that's in you. And really where that leads you is where you love, right? Where you feel most powerfully. And some of that could be a project where you kind of, you have an idea for a project and you really feel the love for that. And Otherwise, it's with people. That's how you really grow, isn't it? Because you, you feel there's more in you. And then when there's more in you, that gives you the capacity to manage the winds when they come and hit you.
3: Yeah, social fitness that, that, as you said, the people around you is very important and finding mentors and people that you can openly discuss topics with. I'm finding more and more people like that in my life. And I really value that.
0: Yeah, well you can always call on me. I'd be more than happy thank to you. be someone to have use as a sounding board. I would um, love to do that. But, um, yeah. Definitely. But but Julia this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being so open and so vulnerable and so honest. It's so valuable for everyone who listens. Oh, and well, you are you. using your experience to to help other people. That's a real gift to others and you.
3: Thank you. Well, I, I hope that if there's anybody going through something similar, the, I, I'm asked often, what's the best advice that you can give to people who are frightened? And yeah. honestly, the way I got to this, just to this point, and I'm by no means the complete picture, but it really is just handling the information one step at a time, one day at a time. Yeah. It can be very overwhelming and you will have days of absolute sadness that, that goes seeps into your core. But it's. I think we all need to have those moments. You do because there are many. Because many they release you to have other there. feelings.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Letting you, you need to let the light in along, alongside the dark. So I hope yeah. that I hope this is useful to lots of people. I'm sure it will be. Thank you so much. And thank you, thank you, Julia. Thank you. So lovely to meet you.
0: Now listeners, it's that time of the show that many of you eagerly anticipate each week, the moment when I'm joined by my two incredible psychotherapist daughters, Emily, who's a child psychotherapist, and Sophie, who's an adult psychotherapist. Let's hear what they have to say about today's enlightening conversation. She's
1: such a joy to listen to, isn't she? <laughs> There's yeah. something about the energy in her voice and like you can feel her passion and curiosity buzz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did have a slight panic around her statistics at the beginning of No Sleep as someone who doesn't get very <laughs> much sleep i was like oh no am i like damaging myself by not getting enough sleep good question
0: i (laughs) I think you have to think about
1: that well no because i mean i I suppose that's what it made me think about because there's a limit to the amount we can control. But also on the flip side, there's also our own internal motivation, right? And I know what I should do to help sleep. For example, the really obvious terrible one is phone. I know yeah. I should keep my phone downstairs or outside or something, but I don't. And then when I wake up at 2am, I look at my phone and I <laughs> know I know I shouldn't do it. And I suppose sort of what it made me think about relating to ju- the conversation with Julia was around you know, when you face your own mortality, wake up, cool. It's a massive kick up the ass, right? To do the things that you mm. know that, or at least it was for her. And I think for lots of other people too, in a similar situation to do the things that, you know, help. So it tipped the scales from like, I know I shouldn't be staring at Instagram in the middle of the night, but it's kind of all right there. And it's like, you know, hitting all the neural pathways to know, actually this really, really isn't worth it. And I, I guess there's that sort of scales, isn't there between, what we know we should do and the motivation driving us to actually do it.
0: That is interesting, isn't it? Because it's sort of below the waterline and all of us, you know, that this time of year, there's all this talk about resolutions. It's not like everybody doesn't know to eat five vegetables a day and exercise and get outside, but we don't make ourselves and we sit and watch telly and eat chocolate. And it's something like a life-threatening diagnosis Forces you to face the impact of your behaviours. What I was wondering was, people listening and you having listened, will it turn the dial up on you paying attention, or do we have to have them ourselves?
1: Hmm, I think it. I think it really depends. <laughs> I also think that you know. In our lives, like in the modern world, there are things that are sort of stacked against your, you know, your little flicker of motivational flame that gets sort of (laughs) blown out by the addictive quality of lots of really of processed foods and things like that. So you can have really good intentions, but unless they're really big, (laughs) it's actually, it is, you know, I think it is hard. I am going to be honest and say probably I was still going to look at my phone in the middle of the night, even though I know I shouldn't and I mean not to. (laughs)
2: <laughs> but it's funny because I, I think of both of you as quite, um, particularly you, Mum, but you as Tickle. well um, with some things, quite good at healthy habits and self-discipline at times, whereas I would say I was someone who finds that much harder than
0: than you. But I I'm good because I'm addictive. So because I'm so addictive, I make the habit my addiction. So I use the same mindset mm. that is very going for something to, t- to try <laughs> and keep me on the straight and narrow.
1: You know, I think what we know about habits is that the easier, the less effort you can make them for yourself, the more likely it is that you're going to do them. So say you're like, resolution is, I am going to drink a glass of water every morning. Then you put the glass of water out the night before. So it's right there, yeah. you know, things like that. I think you're very good at sort of reducing the barrier to entry of doing something healthy. Sort of similarly to Julia, that she sort of, you know, makes it such an inbuilt part of her routine that it's not really an option.
0: But for so the people listening that are more in your mindset that find it hard, do you know what it is that makes it difficult to make the tweaks, as it were?
2: I know that for me, I could get into an internal resistance battle with something that basically, as soon as I hear something is good for me, then it feels like I should do it, which then feels like I'm being told to do it, which then means I don't want to do it. It feels like it becomes (laughs) a chore or it becomes... Rebellious teenager. Yeah, it somehow brings out like an inner resistance that's like, I don't want to have to do that every day. Mm. (laughs) It feels like something I have to Mm. do rather than something I move towards.
1: Yes. But on the flip side, I think maybe it's like one of those things where the things you find difficult are also your strengths, because I think mum and I are not so flexible. I think you're much more sort of open to what your body is telling you. Spontaneous. Yeah, like what the mood, you know, and sometimes it's good not to do that, too, to have some flexibility, to have some sort of self-compassion. There's like an openness to not being
2: rigidly habitual. I wonder if there is any research out there looking at the relationship between habit and addictiveness in healthy behaviours. Because I would say I'm a very non-addictive personality, unlike you, Mum. I find it very, very hard to do habits. I don't mm-hmm. have, as far as I know, any habits that I do regularly regularly. Oh, you do.
1: I have. I'm protesting. Okay, at that. Do, do tell me. What do I do? Okay, you don't drink caffeine during the day, but you allow yourself one
2: cup of tea after lunch just to get you through the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> and I have it with some dark chocolate. Um, and I actually, there, funnily enough, say that I read somewhere, and I can't remember where, that one of the properties of caffeine is to make behaviours more addictive, so that whenever mm. you drink caffeine with a habit, that habit is more deeply ingrained.
1: So my other thinking was really around um, how honest she was with her children and how much courage it takes to be really honest with our children. And I think we've talked about this before, our kind of instinct to protect by not Mm. telling them the hard truth, but actually it doesn't protect them. And What I really loved was how, you know, I think she said, you know, one of her daughters had a question around like the recurrence of her cancer and how she was able to say, I don't know. And I think that's Mm. something as parents, we actually find very difficult to say to our children, but it's so important to be able to say whatever the question is, to be able to say, I don't know. And you can also acknowledge how hard it is for them not to have an answer, that you as their mum or their dad or their caregiver, the people who are sort of supposed to know everything, (laughs) you don't know everything. Mm. Um, And then I think you can also add depending on the context I can ask so-and-so and and when I find out I can tell you or I will let you know as soon as I know so for example in, in situations that are really unknown like your parents are separating and often when parents are separating it takes a while for the cards to fall and you don't necessarily know who's going to be living where and how it's going to work and so to be able to say like this is what I do know and if they have questions I don't know. But as soon as we know, like where daddy's going to live, where mommy's going to live,
2: we can let you know.
0: Yeah. Because that builds trust, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. They trust
2: you. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, so I was going to yeah. say that, That somehow it's, a, it's quite safe making to be trusted and to dialogue, isn't it? In terms of part of what's scary having those conversations is, is feeling that you're going to scare your children. Whereas mm-hmm. actually for them to have a very straightforward, honest conversation actually is a, quite a, very, it's a soothing experience you know, and you can keep asking me questions, you know, this is something that we can keep talking about. It's like, this isn't like your one window. You know, if you have suddenly have a question later that pops into your head, you could, you can always ask me.
0: The other thing I was really interested in, and that the research that supports it is being grateful for life, that how that enhances your quality of life and actually your outcome.
1: I always find it a tough one, because I agree, and I know it's true. And at the same time, being constantly told to be grateful feels quite it's grating. Really <laughs> <laughs> like ah, uh, you know, like oh, and so it's it's sort of one of those ones that's like I know it's good and it does actually help me feel better when I do it.
0: But only if it's genuine.
1: Oh yeah, but actually, I think the research is even if it's not genuine, like even if you can just find something and it, it doesn't feel authentic immediately, it actually still has a positive effect. I think there's something that sort of there's something about it and I think it's like the Pollyanna-ish feeling of it that there's part of me that feels like if I have to be grateful all the time I'm missing out the things that I find annoying or somehow those things aren't valid which is obviously not true but I think that's the sort of resistance to mm-hmm. it that it feels like I'm socially really grateful that means I'm not allowed to be ungrateful.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. You know she touched on the word phrase toxic pos- positivity and that was one of the things I was thought about when she was saying it but it's because I'd recently had a conversation with a friend where she, she was sort of saying, Well, you know, we're talking about New Year's resolutions. She's like, But if I'm, my New Year's resolution is to try and be more appreciative of what I have, but how does that balance that with all the times when I don't feel like that? Should I be sort of trying to turn my head towards the positive things or should I be feeling the low things? And it's like, it is that one allows the other, as you always say, Mum. It's, it's like, Somehow with the gratitude thing, you can feel like it's saying that I'm not allowed to feel the other things. But actually, it's much easier to feel grateful if you also allow yourself to feel mad and pissed and ungrateful. And then Mm -hmm. there's sort of more space to then feel grateful again. There can be nothing more annoying when you're complaining about something or having difficulty and they can go, but you've all got your health. Or, but at least this, you know, like try, try and, I guess, in those moments, help make you feel better by reminding you of the good things in your life and all you feel is like unacknowledged, unheard. And like they've also said that you should be grateful rather than you should be upset. It's actually, (laughs) someone can go, yes, that's, oh, that's really shit. Then at the end, you can say, but actually, I do know that actually everything's okay. Mm. you kind of need the space for both of you? Yeah. and you were talking about social relationships and the importance of of relationships and I thought it was worth adding from a sort of eco-psychotherapy point of view given that it's Julia Bradbury who has a sort of has talked a lot about relationship with nature it's actually it doesn't also always have to be human beings that oh, yeah. we have relationships with that are very meaningful it can be with a tree it can be obviously with people's pets you know a man called David Abrams He's an eco-psychotherapist and a writer. And he talks about the importance of how valuable and rich and deep these kind of relationships can be and how they actually place you by having those relationships. For example, some people have like sit spots. They have a tree that they always go to and they always sit there and they Mm. do it daily or they do it weekly or they do it regularly. And then that place becomes a real place of comfort and meaning and that we don't always, always need other Human beings as a source of connection and comfort. To feel connected to the rest of the natural world can also be very meaningful or soothing and connecting in it in not such a different way as I think maybe sometimes we
0: think. That's lovely. I hadn't thought of that. I didn't even kind of know it. I think that's a lovely addition. Thank you, Emily and Sophie, and particular thank you to Julia Bradbury. Thank you so much for such an insightful and interesting conversation. For those of you who think others might benefit from it, do rate and subscribe and share the podcast with those around you. Thank you all for listening. And we will be in your ears next week.